If you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Peter chapter 3. That will be our text today as we are moving through at a somewhat rapid pace the book, the letter we call 1 Peter. So today we're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. Maybe you saw the story recently about the guy discovered living in Chicago O'Hare Airport. I don't know if you heard this story. Interesting story. I think there was a movie recently that Tom Hanks was in, but this is a different guy. This is a different guy. This was a man from California who evidently flew from L.A. to Chicago, and once he got to Chicago in O'Hare, the huge airport there, he decided that with COVID and everything going on that it wasn't safe for him to continue his trip. And so he didn't make his connecting flight. Instead, he made himself at home in the secure area of the airport for three months. <laughs> he lived in the airport for three months. Now, I've often thought the airport could sustain life. I mean, think about it. Lots of places to sit, phone chargers everywhere, TVs. Now, food would be a little expensive. If you ever bought food or a bottle of water in the airport, a little bit expensive, so you'd, you'd have to have a good plan for feeding, but you could live in the airport, and that's what this guy did. He lived in the airport for three months. Evidently, he found an employee badge early on, and he, he put that on, and he would ask passengers for food, and they would share food with him. So see, he had a, had a plan for the eating part. And so he lived in the airport for three months. That's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> what a story that is. And so you think about him in this airport and what sets him apart from virtually everyone else in the airport. Because most other people in the airport are what? They are passengers. They have their suitcases. They are on the move. They are connecting flights and trying to catch flights. And they're sometimes running through the airport. And maybe they're sitting and they're waiting. But they know one thing, that this is just a stop along the way. They aren't bathing in the sinks of the bathroom. At least, let's hope not. They aren't asking passengers for food. At least, let's hope not. They are on the move. They are passengers passing through. But this guy made himself at home. It reminds us of something that we need to know as Christians. You see, rather than living as exiles, so often we make ourselves at home here. We make ourselves at home in this world. And when we do that, we begin to look a lot like the world. Our speech reflects the speech of the world. Our values reflect the values of the world. Our actions echo the actions of the world. We begin to buy into what the world is selling everyone. And the more and more we do that, the more we look like the world. It feels like sometimes that you just get up in the morning and you get on the treadmill. Now, maybe you literally get on the treadmill, but I'm talking metaphorically here. You get on the treadmill and you run and you run and you run and sometimes you don't even know why you're running, but you run and you look and there's someone on the treadmill next to you and you say, hey, where are we going? And he says, I don't know, but we're losing time. We got to keep running. And that's what life feels like because that's what the world says. The world says to run the race, to put yourself on top, to seek pleasure and happiness. You see, sometimes rather than living as exiles, as those who are simply passing through, we set up shop. 
we make ourselves at home here. But this world is just a stop along the way to our true home. And so as Peter writes to Christian exiles in 1 Peter, he tells them to live, he tells us to live distinctive lives. He says to be good. In fact, that phrase, be good, it's a simple phrase. It's used over and over in 1 Peter. And sometimes, let's be honest, just being good sets Christians apart from the world that so often seems so not good. And so Peter says, be good. In chapter 1, he says, be holy and love deeply. In chapter 2, he says, yield or submit willingly. And so here in chapter 3, he's going to continue that theme of submission or yielding to others. And he's going to talk to some very specific people, but then he's also going to talk to all of us as Christian exiles. And his message is the same chapter after chapter, verse after verse. The message is the same, and that is this. This isn't your home. Live a distinctive life from the world. Recognize who you are and where you are and that you're just passing through. This is simply a stop on the way. So 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 1, he writes these words, Wives, in the same way, and that's an important phrase there, in the same way, the same way as what? The same way as Christ submits. The same way that Christ emptied himself, made himself nothing. Being obedient to his Father to benefit, to bless others. In the same way that he did that, So wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Verse 2, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. All right. So Peter continues with this household, household code. It's, it's something he started at the end of chapter 2. It's something very common in ancient letters. It's also common in the New Testament. Paul does the same thing in Colossians and Ephesians, ending the letter with these guidelines, these principles for people in the home about our relationships, how we act and interact with each other. So you have this household code that is in the Bible, but the ones that are in the Bible, whether it's from Paul or Peter, are very distinct from the codes of the world, the secular ancient letters. They're very different from those. You see, even in our relationships, and maybe especially in our relationships, including our relationships in the home, they are to be distinctive Marriages are to look different when they are Christian marriages. Husbands and wives and children and siblings and parents and grandparents. We are to live in such a way that stands out from the relationships of the world. Are our relationships somehow better? Are we better? No, we've said over and over, that's not what Peter is saying. He doesn't say be distinctive because you're better. He says be distinctive because you draw people to Christ in the heart of Christ, in the way of Christ. And so here he says, in your homes, don't simply adhere to the cultural norms. You see, 
That's the difference. Don't simply buy into what the world says when it comes to how to do family. And so he says specifically here, wives, in the same way, remember, in the same way that Christ submits, so have this attitude, this heart of Christ, yield to your husbands. Wives, submit or yield to your husbands. Now, that's not a very popular statement, is it? But it is a very biblical statement. I remember that, that old movie, Big Fat Greek Wedding. I don't know if you've seen that. Great little movie where the loud mother of this big Greek family takes her daughter and she says, that's right, the man is the head, but the woman is the neck. And she can turn the head any direction she wants to. <laughs> when we saw that, my wife said, is that true? I said, no. I'm kidding. But we don't like to read that, do we? Not in our enlightened new world that we live in. Wives, submit, yield to your husbands the same way that Christ did. It is so important. Don't, don't lose me here. Don't check out. Stay with me. It is so important that we look at the context and we look at the meaning, the reason behind Peter's instruction. It's so important. Peter seems to t be talking to, at least partially, maybe primarily, to Christian wives of pagan husbands. You see, in that society, the cultural norm was, yes, of course, wives submit to your husbands. That's the way all of society was. And so for a wife to submit to her husband meant also that she would take on his pagan religion. And so here we have Christian wives who are doing what? They are already subverting the cultural norms by taking on Christ. And so what Peter says here is, now that you've done that, which is great, don't cause conflict in your home. Don't be about chaos in your home. There is great potential for conflict and chaos because you are sub subverting the, the cultural norms by taking on Christ rather than your husband's pagan religion. So already they're standing out. Already they are distinctive. And he says, you submit. You choose to submit. Choose to yield. Why, Peter, why? He's a pagan. I'm a Christian. Why should I do that? Well, is it, is it so she remembers her place so that he makes sure she remembers her place? Is it to support this hierarchy that's been set up? No. It's the same reason he tells all of us to submit. Because submission is so different from the world. And that kind of distinctive life draws people to Christ. That's the point. He says, you yield to your husband. Submit to your husband because your life, your attitude, your actions may be able to do what? there at the end of verse 1 win him over not to your way of thinking but win him over to Christ you see that's what it's about drawing people to Christ bringing people to Jesus and so if it means you yield but it will result in bringing him to Christ isn't that worth it isn't that what Jesus did remember in the same way so yield to your husband the way of the world then was to submit with resentment, to adhere to, a, to an impressive social structure. But here he says, choose to submit. 
as a spiritual witness for the cause of Christ and in the name of Christ and to honor Christ. And then Peter continues to promote this very distinctive life. I appreciate what Will said just a few moments ago about perspective. As we've said before, that's what Peter is doing. He is shaping perspective. How you see your marriage in this case. How you see your life. How you see your vocation. And here he continues. In verse 3 he says, Ladies, don't worry so much about looking like a million bucks. Now, it's not wrong to fix your hair up. That's great. It's not wrong to wear nice clothes or jewelry. But it is wrong to find your worth and your value in those things. Again, remember, this is an, an appeal to live a distinctive life, to not buy into what the world says. And what does the world say? The world says you are what you can do and you are how you look. And let me just take a moment, maybe to speak specifically to our young ladies, maybe our students, maybe, maybe even our young guys, I, I don't know. But, but our young single ladies and our young moms maybe, our young wives, because social media says something to you. Social media would have you believe that you are measured by how you look, by how your children look, your babies, your house. Social media would have you believe that it is your appearance that gives you worth and value. And so if you can just post the perfect picture, take as many as you need to because you can delete them, post the perfect picture, and then people will log on and they'll give you the like and they'll make comments like you're gorgeous and you're adorable and you're attractive, then you have worth and value. That's what the world says. The world says if you have the perfect house and you have the perfect looking children and you have the perfect hair and face and body and you're beautiful, then you have value. Again, it's not wrong to look nice. It's not wrong to post appropriate pictures of yourself, I suppose. It's certainly not wrong to compliment others and to be complimented. But the world would have you believe that those things are most important, that how you look is most important, that your value as a person hinges on how you look, and get this, how crazy is this? Not only how you look, but what other people say about how you look. Listen, that's not from God. That's from Satan. Because Satan wants to drag you down. Look at back at verse 4. Look at what he says. Look at what God says. Rather, your beauty should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Maybe that's a verse you need to highlight. Maybe you need to screenshot that verse and save it in a prominent place. Maybe you need to post it on your mirror. I don't know. But you need to know that God looks at your heart. And that's what's most important. That's where your beauty is. That's where your value is. Your value is in who you are in Christ. And he sees your heart. So don't get so comfortable in this world that you start judging yourself by the world's standards and finding your sense of worth and value 
based on what others say because that is a game that you will never win. You will never win that because we live in a cruel world. So, back to the text. Remember what I said about the household code? How biblical household codes, these guidelines and principles for families are different from the worldly or the secular household codes? You see, in the the secular writings, they weren't addressed to husbands at all. There was instructions for everyone else, but not for husbands because why? Well, they had all the power. They had all the authority. They could basically do whatever they wanted in the secular world, but not in the New Testament, not in God's instructions to families. And so in Paul, Colossians, and Ephesians, and here with Peter, he addresses husbands. He has advice for husbands. So what does he say? Look at verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, there's that phrase again, not only the same way that wives submit, but in the same way that Christ has done all of this, be considerate as you live with your wives. The English Standard Version says, live in an understanding way. Be considerate. Treat them with respect or honor as the weaker partner. And this refers, I mean, that word really does refer to physical strength, which is often the case. He goes on, treat them as heirs with you of this gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Well, we, we, we read this instruction now, we go, well, yeah, of course, husbands, treat your wives well. <laughs> Why wouldn't you? I mean, that's our 21st century Western world reading of this. Uh, yeah. You should treat your wives well. But in the first century pagan world, this was radical. This was revolutionary. Women didn't really have rights. They didn't have social standing. I mean, look at Aristotle, what, 300 years before this, who said women were second-class citizens. I mean, that's the culture of the day. And sometimes women were even treated as property. That was the way of the world. So to blend in, to live like everyone in the world, to make yourself at home in the world as a husband, you were to put your wife in her place and maybe even force her to submit if she chose not to. But what does Peter say? What does God say? He says to be distinctive. Husbands, treat your wives with respect, dignity, honor them. Don't use your position, your place of power and influence to oppress, to coerce. That's an important lesson, not only in marriage, but in every aspect of life. When you have power, when you have influence, the godly thing to do is to not use that power and influence to push others down, but to lift them up. And that's what he says here. In fact, he says, treat her as what? An heir. Now remember, in that society, daughters, they didn't get part of the inheritance. Women had to rely on their husbands if there was going to be any inheritance. And what does he say? He says, no, in God's kingdom, they are co-heirs. This inheritance of grace and truth, of life, belongs to them. So treat them as, really what he's saying is treat them as equal. Treat them as equal. Time and time again, 
That's what the New Testament says. Life in the kingdom is about elevating others. Life in the world is what? It's about pushing others down so that I can elevate myself. But life in the kingdom is about elevating others. So Peter has been focused on families, and now he expands. He takes the wide-angle lens, and he sort of broadens the view. And now he addresses all Christian exiles in verse 8. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing now just look at those instructions look at those qualities and characteristics and actions do those sound countercultural? if we choose to live this way does that stand out from the ways of the world absolutely our world is not about being like-minded our world is about being divisive A world is not about being sympathetic, about loving necessarily, unless loving means I will be loved. A world is not necessarily championing the cause of compassion or humility. Certainly not returning evil with blessing. When you read this, the first thing I think about is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I mean, these are echoes of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. As he describes life in God's kingdom apart from life in this world. Turning everything upside down or maybe right side up, but it's different. And you remember what Jesus said. When someone hits you on one side of your face, you turn the other side. When someone asks you to go one mile, you go with them an extra mile. When someone curses you, you bless them. Pray for your enemies. That stands out. That is distinctive. And then Peter goes on in verse 11, quoting Psalm 34. It says, they must turn from evil and what? Do good. There's that phrase again, do good. Turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. Does that sound like what our world is about right now? Seeking peace and pursuing it? Boy, it doesn't, does it? And and this is more than just passively waiting on peace to happen. This is pursuing peace. Those of you who have a dog, has your dog ever gotten out? How do you respond? What do you do? Our old hound dog used to get out occasionally. And that dog, you know, some people, your dog goes outside and just kind of hangs out in the yard. Or you go out and do a little whistle or a little call and they come trotting back. Our dog, when she got out, I mean, she was like an escaped convict that was serving a life sentence. I mean, she was gone. And so you have a choice to make, right? Do you go after her? Or, you know, sometimes like I would do, you know, hey, okay, she's not coming back. (laughs) Don't take that like I mean it, okay? I loved our dog. But you have a choice to make. Do you just stand out on the front yard and kind of call for her and wait? Well, you know, she gets hungry enough, I guess she'll come home. Or do you get in your car? Do you get on the, you know, hit the pavement and go look for her? There's a difference, isn't there? And there's probably a difference in the result, depending on the dog. One time when I was gone, she got out. This was several years ago. Riley was young, and so 
Carrie Ann and Riley go out looking for our old hound dog. They go down the neighbors and they can hear her barking. I mean, this is a hound dog. She has a very distinctive bark. They can hear her barking behind someone's house in their backyard. And so they knock on the door and they say, our dog got out. We think she might be in your backyard. We can hear her barking. And they say, no, we don't have a dog back there. Well, we can hear her. I'm sure, can we just look? Because I think she's back there. No, we don't. We don't have your dog out there. And, And all the whole time she was barking. And sure enough, finally, she was out there. She was in their backyard. You know, that's the way this pursuit of peace is. Are you just going to stand there and wait? Well, peace should happen. It should be peaceful. Boy, this world's a mess. There's a lot of conflict, a lot of chaos. I wish it was better. Or are you going to go out and pursue it? You're going to look for it. You're going to knock on the neighbor's door. And here's the thing. The people in the world, they don't necessarily want you to have that peace. So they're going to try to take it from you. You've got to pursue it. He says, you go after it. You go get it. Don't wait for it. You say, well, that all sounds great. Be sympathetic, be one-minded, pursue peace, forgive those who hurt you, return blessing. When someone comes after you, that sounds great, but that's really not my personality. It's really not how I'm wired. I am more confrontational. I'm more of an in-your-face kind of person. That's not really my personality to be sympathetic, and those kinds of things. Listen, as Peter writes this, inspired by the Spirit of God, he is not describing a personality type. This is a call to discipleship. And so it doesn't matter what your Enneagram number is. It doesn't matter about Myers-Briggs or Briggs and Stratton or whatever it is. It doesn't matter about your personality. As disciples of Christ, we are all called to live this way. A distinctive life from the world that pursues peace, that is sympathetic, that when attacked, doesn't return that attack, but somehow, by the Spirit of God, the power of God, returns blessing. Remember, these Christian exiles, to whom he is writing, they are being persecuted. They are being treated poorly, unjustly, unjustly. They're, they're, things are not going well for them. And they have a choice to make, don't they? Amidst all of this, they have a choice. Do I just give up? It's not worth it. Do I just give up? Or do I get back? They're being persecuted. So do I fight back? Do I get back? Do I get even? Do I get revenge? Or do I simply just give up? And Peter says, with the help of the Spirit of God, turn from evil. Do good. Seek peace. Return blessing. So he continues in verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? There's that phrase again. But even if you should suffer, knowing that this world is broken, that people are cruel sometimes, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere or set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who who speak maliciously against you, your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. 
You see, we have that same choice. When we are targeted for doing the right thing, when we are attacked or it feels like we're being attacked and we're trying to do the right thing, we have the same choice to make. Will we respond like the world responds? With unchecked anger, revenge, resentment? Or will we just throw up our hands and give up? Will we listen to that that little voice inside of us that says, you don't deserve this. Make them pay. Or will we quiet and silence that voice with the peace of Christ and the purpose of Christ? That is to make him known. We have that same choice. Here's what it comes down to. Will you take the high road? I know that's a little bit of a cliche, but I think... I think we all understand what that means. When the world comes after you, when you face injustice, when things aren't fair, especially because you're trying to do the right thing, will you take the high road? As N.T. Wright points out, there is great irony in all of this. And here's the irony. God calls us to live distinctive lives to not live like the world lives, to not make ourselves at home in the world, but to be different, to be holy, to be set apart. And when we try to enact or fulfill that calling, what happens? Oftentimes, the world comes after us. They mock us. They misunderstand us. They make assumptions about us. They ridicule us. They attack us sometimes. And what is our temptation then? Well, like most people, when you feel attacked, you attack back. And so we end up mocking and ridiculing and posting mean things and maligning those who are coming after us. And here's the irony. What happens? We look just like the ones we're trying to be different from. We look just like the world that we're called out of. So will you take the high road? But you need to know this, and I know you do. Taking the high road is really taking the low road of submission and humility. Lowering yourself, yielding yourself. Because when you're on the high road, sometimes it demands that you walk away, that you not get revenge, that you not retaliate that you not feel entitled to make them hurt like you hurt. Sometimes life on the high road means going the extra mile and then the extra mile and maybe another mile. Sometimes life on the high road means you need to pick someone up, even someone who has hurt you, and try to carry them with you. You see, the high road is not an easy path but it is the way of Jesus. All of those things I just said, isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that what he does? Jesus took the high road. And let's remember, the whole reason we live this way is to point people to Jesus. What did Peter say? He said, be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. 
Now remember, they're being persecuted, they're being mistreated, and Peter is saying, I know you have hope. There is great hope in Christ, so hang on to that hope, but don't just hang on to it like it's a life preserver. You hang on to it and be ready to speak about it, the source of that hope, and that is Christ. The reason that you're enduring this suffering, the reason that you're not retaliating, the reason you're taking the high road, you be ready to tell people that it's because of Jesus. And I wonder, as Peter wrote these words, if he reflected on his own life. He wrote these words, be ready to give an answer. Do you remember around the fire in the courtyard when Jesus was arrested and Peter was confronted? Hey, aren't you with him? Hey, don't you belong to Jesus? Hey, aren't you one of his followers? Peter wasn't ready, was he? He wasn't ready to give an answer, so he responded, he reacted like the world does, out of self-preservation, out of taking care of number one, out of elevating self. I don't know that guy. I have nothing to do with him. But now, years later, the risen Christ has transformed Peter's life, his thinking, his perspective, and he's ready to give an answer. Are you? Are you ready to give an answer? Well, after three months in the airport, this guy was discovered. He was found out. He was exposed. Two airport employees noticed the badge he had, (laughs) and they knew that it had been reported missing. So they called authorities. Authorities came, and they ended up arresting this guy and charging him with criminal trespassing and probably bathing in a bathroom sink. That's not a crime, it should be. As a part of the conditions for his bail, the judge ordered that he not set foot inside an airport. (laughs) They were afraid that he would make himself at home, I guess. He couldn't go into an airport. So he lost his home away from home, I guess. Listen, maybe you need to be discovered. Maybe it's time that you are found. Maybe you have been living your life buying what the world is selling, looking an awful lot like the world that you know you're called out of. Maybe it's time to be noticed, to be discovered, to be called out because you're simply a passenger. This is just a stop on the way to your true home. So embrace the way of Jesus. Take the high road. Jesus has already traveled down that road, and now he says, come with me. Let's go together, and let's take the high road. And yes, the high road means the low road of submitting and yielding and sacrifice. But that's the path of Jesus. And that is truly, ultimately, the path of glory. That path begins with seeing who Jesus is and believing he is who he says he is and having faith in him and putting your life in his hands and being baptized into Christ, clothed with Christ, raised to live a new life. In fact, in verse 21, he actually mentions baptism. He talks about baptism that now saves us. And he goes on to say it's not the act that you do, It's not anything you do. It's not what the water does. That's not holy water up there. 
That's what God does. In that surrender of life, in that submission, that yielding to Jesus, it's what God does in us to transform us, to bring about new life. That life can be yours. It's a life that you were created to live. You weren't created to live as a part of this world. I mean, surely that makes sense when you think about it. All the chaos and conflict, surely there's something more. There is. You were created to live a life that glorifies Jesus and calls other people to him. You were called to take the high road with Jesus. Why don't you embrace that calling today? If we can help you in some way, if you're watching online, go to our website, to our prayer page, reach out to us. If you're here today, then you can come forward and just make your need known. We lift you up in prayer. We'll do what we can to walk with you as we stand and sing together in the stand. I have this.